0: This evening's talk is about concentration. And beginning uh, with a quote from a Tibetan teacher who teaches uh, concentration, B. Alan Wallace. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the earth's atmosphere. Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of mind. As I'm sure many of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, which have already been mentioned. They're mindfulness, investigation, energy or effort, joy. Tranquility, Concentration, and Equanimity. Concentration is one of the mm, powers of the mind, we could say. It's uh, one of the five spiritual powers, which as they mature, Um, become the powers of the mind. The five controlling faculties, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented that the practice of samatha, the practice of concentration, and the practice of vipassana, that with the practice of vipassana, without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, he said it's like sending a a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect him. So we'll begin, or go on beginning, uh, this evening's discussion with three Pali words. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind and practice as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight. These three aspects of practice form really the three branches of mental development, of all of the mental development that is essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities are these capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These three profound insights are what lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often, very often did, he starts with a question. And then he goes on to answer his question. And this is from directly from him. If concentration in or samadhi is developed, what profit does it bring? And then the Buddha goes on to respond to his own question. The mind is developed. And again he says if the mind is developed what profit does it bring? And then he re- he says all lust is abandoned. And then the Buddha says if insight is developed what profit does it bring? And he says wisdom is developed. And then he asks if wisdom is developed what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned, he says. And so, concentration, samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of, of sila deepen and as they mature within us, we really come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment and ease on a deeper and more profound level and what brings suffering and confusion and what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline or sila is the basis for the development of samatha, the basis for the development of samadhi. The term samadhi refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of an exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our habits of attraction which show up as greed and clinging and expectation and attachment and our habits of aversion which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now, this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering, samsara in Pali. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, one way to uh, look at it, to look at what's called ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, dogs, China, Israel, thoughts, feelings, rain, snow, one's aging body, Germany, New York, Sunshine, your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, are understood, and on and on and on, are understood and regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, as being without any separate, solid sustaining self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, to untangle the tangle, so to say, that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in concentration and mindfulness. In speaking to one of his chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kamata Sutta in the, from, from the Nikaya, the Buddha again asks a question, and then he proceeds to answer it. He says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And he goes on. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda. And freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose. Joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose. Rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose. Serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhantship or liberation from suffering. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own uh, process and his own experience, the Buddha said this, he said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experiences, and often from some of our more difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we might deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind, is synonymous with these acts of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind that's attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, of gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily really quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its many, many distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus and to stabilize and to direct the mind rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes might waft in on it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in light of this, we can ask ourselves the question, does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? So for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off just at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well-developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a a chosen object is, is a skill that can be learned like any other skill. It can be learned by practice, by patient repetition, and gradual development. The Vesudhi Magga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share just a couple of these with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives toward the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it and then absorbing into it. So a metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor offered by by the Vasudhi Maga that I particularly um, relate to because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding staying there with a very strong and yet very relaxed focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay becomes centered on the potter's wheel. Then the potter with a continuing focused attention, with one hand directly on the clay Steadily holding and supporting the clay. The other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. This other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it and a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and uh, visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deeper states of concentration, maybe even possibly into jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself. Strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. And it's quite an energizing, refreshing, and can often be a beautiful experience. Because our Exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, or concentration. I think it will be helpful for us to begin to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. None of this can grow. None of this can develop and grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So an example, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath, at the nostril area, the Anapanaspat, or the movement, the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly. And during this time you're maybe worried or you're filled with some kind of expectation. If that's the case, calm and joy will be, be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem just so important in the moment. And it's very important to note at this point that this isn't about kicking out thoughts. Kicking out or booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. And seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Why? Because the mind can get lost in myriad, many, many mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions thinking that whatever it is, is very important. Some years ago I had an experience during a a three-month retreat that was devoted to the development, an experience related to this, in a retreat that was uh, devoted to the development of concentration. For the first week or so of this retreat, every day after lunch I would make myself a kind of fancy cup of tea. Taking two or three different loose teas that were in the jars uh, available and mixing them together in a, a tea ball to make myself this fancy cup of tea. Seemed like a very important and necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. Towards the end of the week, I noticed um, that there was a box of tea, uh, tea bags sitting on, on the counter that was uh, of one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. And it had been sitting there all along, but the mind hadn't connected with it with any clear awareness at all up until that moment. And the thought came when I noticed that box of tea bags do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and and seeming need, is this really important? Well, very quickly the answer came, no. It's not at all important. It's just merely a habitual distraction. So that day, and then uh, ongoing, uh, I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and enjoyed it. It was just, good enough. What happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously at times, throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously as time went on, no. And I would just then simply let go of whatever it was at that point. It took time for that to develop, though. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are Continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration, as the Buddha speaks about, and also maybe for some people, uh, at some point, jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. And as I said, the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances. It considerably weakens the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, peace, and whatever degree of equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when they manifest, when they clearly manifest to, it, to, to some degree, the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind are temporarily eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long run. particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So just taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deepening concentration, quite specifically, address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration, and that also very much hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility Free the mind, free the heart, from various impurities and inner obstacles. Giving the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again and again to the object. The Pali word for this is vitaka. With the establishment of the mind on the object, such as the breath, the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, the spot or the movement of the breath in the belly, this eventually eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness, stiffness of the mind. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object, as the breath or metaphrase. This is called vichara in Pali. This eventually eliminates uncertainty, eliminates doubt. the concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, a kind of bright happiness, a kind of elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of mind and heart. And the Pali word for this is piti. This really brings a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention. Such as the breath or the metaphrases, and with the developing uh, development of a deepening concentration, with this process, ill will is temporarily inhibited. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there is much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. It's not the breath at that point. It's the direct experience of the jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily, completely inhibited. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of bliss, or contentment a sweet easeful happiness the word in pali for this is sukha which in its maturity is it's not a pleasant bodily feeling but a blissful contented mental feeling when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening developing concentration and then much more profoundly in the third jhana Restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated or inhibited. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of a one-pointed focus of deepening concentration, and the Pali word for this is ikakata, with this occurring occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana, this one pointedness, one pointed focus of attention is the experience of a very clear and strong centeredness, balance, and equanimity. During that time, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited, is at bay, is not in one's field of experience. As samadhi, or concentration, develops and moves along and the states that corrupt the natural purity, the luminosity of the mind and the heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, have been clearly let go, or at least temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And to one's particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and maturing of this gladness a joyful zest and a taste of wholesome elation which is sometimes defined as rapture is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, and this is a very important aspect, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, these are removed. They disappear with the calm and quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, again very important, without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course this whole process must be accompanied by a continuous and sustained mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that is being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of what in Pali is called raga, which is literally translated as unwholesome passion. And often used synonymously with desire, craving, attachment, or the clinging, which is really the core cause of dukkha, our core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof. that The the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or be aware of an unwholesome emotion that has arisen and will be aware of a per- provocative sense door input, but won't allow. Will but will allow these to just simply roll off the mind, and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf, or water rolling off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop to serve our insight practice. The first of these is what is called kanaka samadhi, momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability (coughs) to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one and ongoing moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for vipassana practice, for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called upacharya samadhi. It's translated as access concentration or neighborhood concentration. This is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration and can be re and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of all other objects, as does jhana. With upachara concentration, or excess concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object, even though it contains close to the same degree of intensity of a deeply absorbed jhana state. So from this perspective, excess concentration can be helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third uh, type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily, temporarily important, totally purified of the specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana, only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally and inevitably take place in our insight practice, in our vipassana practice particularly momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment and identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or interest. Sometimes it's of interest, but it may not be uh, one's inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana, potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. the achievement of jhana concentration may require many months it usually does almost always require many, many months and often many years of practice of single-pointed practice meditating for many hours every day and it may seem quite impractical for some people to do this people f- feel well who's got the time for that for some for others it seems worthwhile it seems worthwhile and maybe possible in moving toward towards what discovers or what uh What discoveries lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope, so to say, of Samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place but with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of the experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In this light, I'd like to... um, share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it said that the bodhisattva, Bodhi, I'll translate that word, uh, some people may not know what it means. Bodhi uh, translates as awakening or enlightenment, and sata is a being who is dedicated, uh, who has the very strong intention to bodhi, to awaken. It said that the bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflecting on this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the Spring Plowing Festival, a time every year when the men of the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual making the beginning of spring to marking the beginning of the spring planting season, right at this very same time of year that we are in right now. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree observing the scene unfolding before him with the very open and alert and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Really, nothing on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in wave-like, even wave-like furrows noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flashing and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling and suffering and dying, endlessly going on, beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind, as he sat alone, clearly focused and very deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was unfolding before him, and in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add and nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from his sensual pleasures, and secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice and without any attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a very deep, state of concentration it said it was the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a bright sweet pleasure and joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything and in his young mind a deep intuitive understanding was born It was actually like seeds planted in his young mind. As a young man in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it said that following on this memory from his childhood the Bodhisattva became filled with energy and a sureness that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening in his quest for enlightenment. It was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact, couldn't be purified or banished or released or let go of, relinquished, by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them. Or by just living through them. And and then stealing or hardening oneself. And then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling to or trying very hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life how many times in small even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies or various situations or activities or various relationships that created hardship? Or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life. And maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. And in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did, and thinking just as he did, that these fantasies, or situations, or activities, or relationships, would somehow bring a sustaining joy happiness and ease into your life Potentially certainly a certain degree of mental strength might be gained But the light at the end of the tunnel the light of liberation can never be seen felt and known with this way As a young man and remembering his childhood experiences, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, a heart, that's secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, extreme tiredness, laziness, restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated and mindful presence and detachment that it's not only okay but it's that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed and clinging and fear and judgment, anger and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, of a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the bodhisattva came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and in his case, jhana, was a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in his discourse to one of his students, Sakaka, he said, I thought why am I afraid of this pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at this point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then, not long after that, he went and sat in meditation under a bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first the second the third and the fourth jhana and that we with each of these pleasurable abidings and in the buddha's words now he says but just as pleasant feelings but but such pleasant feelings <coughs> that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain when my concentrated mind was thus purified bright unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attained to equanimity. He tells Sakaka that he systematically then attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, just as they are. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with. Nothing to argue with nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up, and often quite absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, or how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know is not true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. a mind made up. A mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. And it keeps us in conflict. Keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility. Keeps us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical discipline or virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often very challenging river of life to the other side. To the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence. To the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samadhi or samatha The development of concentration is beautiful, potentially healing and powerful in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal. That is seeing the true nature of existing phenomena. Parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we really recognize the true nature of things. Recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are today. Here we are this evening. More than 2,500 years after the story I've told regarding the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and very amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass his experience on to others. In closing the talk this evening, i just like to say that It's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk this evening with a poem from Mary Oliver that speaks to this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet moving way. She calls this poem, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. And this is the season for it, as I'm sure you've all heard. (laughs) It was spring, and I finally heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising, and in fact it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush, for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And yes, of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.